welcome to the Westminster Institute. I'm Robert Riley, its director. Today, we're particularly delighted to welcome back to the Westminster Institute, uh, Stephen Moser, who is an internationally recognized authority on China and population issues, as well as an acclaimed speaker and author. He's the president of the Population Research Institute, and has worked tirelessly since 1979 to fight coercive population control programs and has helped hundreds of thousands of women and families worldwide over the years. Most intriguingly, in 1979, Stephen was the first American social scientist to visit mainland China. He was invited there by the Chinese government where he had access to government documents and actually witnessed women being forced to have abortions under the new one-child policy. Dr. Moser has appeared numerous times before Congress as an expert in world population, China, and human rights abuses. He's also made many TV appearances on famous programs like Good Morning America, 60 Minutes, the Today Show, 2020, Fox and CNN News, as well as many radio talk shows across the nation. He's a prolific author and has written the best-selling a Mother's Ordeal, One Woman's Fight Against China's One-Child Policy, China Misperceived, American Illusions and Chinese Reality, Journey to the Forbidden China, and Broken Earth, the Rural Chinese. His forthcoming book is The Devil and Communist China, From Mao Down to Xi. Uh, Steve's articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Reader's Digest, The New Republic, Washington Post, National Review, the Asian Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. We're delighted that he is joining us today to discuss the topic of China's demographic challenge. Steve, welcome back. It's good to be with you again, Bob. Now, we know earlier this year, China's National Bureau of Statistics made the revelation that the population in China had fallen by 850,000 people, the first population decline since Mao Zedong's disastrous uh, Great Leap Program uh, killed millions through famine. This has occasioned a lot of discussion. Uh, you would be in a position to remark upon how much of it is tethered to reality and how much of it is fantasy. What is your take on this? Well, I think that uh, China is facing many, many problems uh, that have been caused by the Chinese Communist Party. But its uh, birth dearth is the most intractable. The, the fact is uh, that right now uh, China is dying. Uh, China's children are vanishing. Um, you know, uh, and, and uh, we know that the Chinese Communist Party has created an economic model that is unsustainable. We know that official corruption and mismanagement of the economy probably consumes a third of the wealth of the, uh, of the production of the Chinese people each year in corruption, in supporting them and the lifestyle to which they become accustomed with their resorts and foreign junkets and so forth. Uh, we know the Chinese Communist Party has crushed innovation and creativity among the Chinese people in favor of totalitarian control. We know that it has bred lawlessness among the population, uh, that the only reason it has prospered really is because the United States and other Western countries have provided uh, financial and technological support. 
uh, in the trillions of dollars, really trillions of dollars uh, over the last uh, 25, 30 years. And, and they've also provided support by not cracking, cracking down on, uh, on uh, the cyber theft, the, uh, the human theft of our intellectual property to the tune of $600 million a year. Uh, we also know that, that uh, China is destroying its environment. I mean, and I'm not talking here about, you know, opening up two uh, coal-fired uh, power plants every couple of weeks or so in China, which they're doing. I'm talking about letting raw sewage run into agricultural fields. I'm talking about the fact that 80 or 90% of the groundwater in China is undrinkable because it's been polluted uh, by sewage or by contaminants by heavy metals. Uh, I'm talking about the fact that the air in many Chinese cities is often unbreathable because there's so much particulate matter uh, in the air from factories that are unmonitored. Uh, we also know China has recklessly escalating debt. The Chinese Communist Party has tried to buy itself out of crises after crises, and now the debt is three or four times GDP. It is simply unsustainable. But, but I think, Bob, that the, the most severe problem that China faces is really the wanton destruction of human capital by the Chinese Communist Party. Tens of millions of Chinese were killed in various political campaigns and famines, uh, in the first 50 years of a Communist Party rule. But the worst thing that's been visited upon the Chinese people is the one-child policy, which ran from about 1980 to 2016. It resulted in 400 million unborn and sometimes newborn children being killed before or immediately after birth. Uh, that is half of the last two generations of Chinese who are missing, uh, having been killed by this misguided policy of the Chinese Communist Party. This ensures that when China collapses, and it will collapse uh, over the next year or two, depending on how much aid the Biden administration is willing to give it. I mean, the uh, uh, Gina Raimondo, the, the, uh, the Commerce Secretary, is currently in Beijing talking to China's Commerce Secretary, probably about uh, how Wall Street and Washington, D.C. can once again bail out the Chinese Communist Party. So we may extend the life of the Chinese Communist Party, its economy over the next year or two. Uh, I don't know. That would be typical uh, for this administration, uh, which is the polar opposite of, of, of the Trump administration in dealing with China. But eventually the collapse will come. And what makes China's rise after that collapse much more difficult, perhaps impossible, is the fact that China's population pyramid has been turned on its head. Uh, there is simply more old people in China right now than young people. There are simply too few children being born in China to sustain the current population. And the numbers, I mean, you mentioned the numbers, uh, even the Chinese Communist Party State Statistical Bureau, which quite frankly lies about everything, has now said that China's total fertility rate dropped to 1. I think 0 0.08 in 2022. If they say it's at 1.08, my bet is it is that it is significantly lower than that. In fact, my best guess is that China's fertility rate now is about that of Hong Kong. And you know, we still have pretty good statistics out of, out of Hong Kong. The Hong Kong total fertility rate, that is the number of children that a woman will have over her reproductive lifetime is now 0 0.8. That's less than one child over the course of each woman in Hong Kong's reproductive lifetime. I think China, is probably close to that level. 
And, and I will tell you this, that if you crunch the numbers and look at how that plays out over time, by the year 2080, uh, the U.S. will have a larger population than China. Think about that for a minute. Think about the fact that China's 1.4 billion people are going to shrink to a few uh, tens of millions over 400 million, about 450 million by 2080, by which time the U.S. population will exceed China's. Now, Chinese communist parties always kill, right? Sometimes they kill quickly. Other times they kill slowly. The Chinese Communist Party has excelled at both. But uh, the one-child policy is literally uh, killing off the Chinese people and making it very difficult, at least under this government, for China to, uh, to ever rise again. Its population uh, is aging and dying. Uh, it has a huge and growing population of elderly beyond their, reprodu beyond their reproductive years, beyond their productive years, uh, that the state will have to find the means to either support or to eliminate one way or another. So um, so China's got a lot of problems caused by the Chinese Communist Party, but the lack of babies is the worst. Steve, a number of population experts have commented on the statistics, the growth rate, and say that once the reproductive rate falls into that area, if you say 1.1 or whatever it is, uh, or, or even below that, that it's irreversible at that point, that yeah. there's no example of a uh, a nation whose population has uh, reached that low reproductive rate that has recovered from it. That's issue one. Now, you, you mentioned quite startling statistics about how many missing persons there are due to the draconian one-child policy in China for so many years. I was looking at more modest statistics, still shocking ones, that say there are 60 million missing women. In other words, women who aren't there because they were aborted. And that this creates a tremendous gender imbalance in Chinese society. There are 30 million more men than women People suggest this could be a source of social instability. You have also referred to the structure of the population as the real problem. I understand that life expectancy in China over the past, say, 60 or more years has increased from 44 years old to uh, 77, uh, that the retirement age in China is 60 for, for men. Uh, 55 for women, 50 for women working in factories, and that the Chinese party is making noises about possibly increasing that retirement age. And it's there's a, a lot of social resistance to that. But it creates a tremendous demand, as you just mentioned, for social services for those retired elderly people I understand that's just a very rudimentary level right now. And it, it and if they increase it, it's going to absorb a really significant amount of uh, the Chinese uh, GDP. Yeah, Bob. I mean, that's why the, the problem is so intractable. It, it's really insoluble because uh, think about the average young woman in China who has probably uh, four uh, married young woman in China with no children. Uh, but has uh, her husband's parents and her own parents still alive, uh, maybe with uh, a couple of grandparents still alive, 
and uh, and 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 she and her husband are really uh, their sole support in old age because the social welfare network in China, the social support network in China is 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 very lacking in terms of government support. There's no nationwide social security program, for example. So young women in China who are now being told by Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party that they should be patriotic and that they should do the right thing. And, and now, after having been told for almost four decades to stop at one child, they're now being told they should have two or three for the good of the country, uh, for the good of their family. And, and young women are throwing up their hands and saying, wait, wait a minute, we're already supporting financially our aging parents and a couple of grandparents, and you're telling us that we should have two or three children? Uh, they're saying it's simply unsustainable. And one of the reasons that problem is even worse is because of this preference for sons, uh, which played out during the one-child policy and resulted in the execution, the forced, the killing of, uh, of unborn baby girls and newborn baby girls in large numbers. And we're talking about half million, a million, two million baby girls being eliminated each year by sex selection abortion and by female infanticide. And that has resulted in a very small cohort of young women in China of reproductive age. Where are their sisters? Uh, where are their female cousins? Where are their female friends? Well, a lot of them have been killed. So out of this relatively small number of young women, you are not going to have, who are reluctant to have uh, more than one child, you are not going to find the kind of robust uh, fertility that you need to have to restore China's population to something resembling stability. I looked at the numbers and it would take every young woman in China of reproductive age to get married at around the age of 18 and promptly have three children before she reached the age of 30 to stop the ongoing population decline. And I can imagine no combination of incentives, no combination of, of of, of, of bribes or punishments that would convince young women to adopt that lifestyle. Uh, many of them have rejected marriage entirely. Those who get married often reject children. And remember, they've been told, China, the, the entire Chinese population was told for almost four decades that for the good of the country, for the good of the Chinese Communist Party, for the good of the province, for the good of the family, uh, they should only have one child. And now all of a sudden, the Chinese Communist Party has belatedly too little and too late, reverse course, and young people in China don't want to hear it. They're not having it because the culture has fundamentally been transformed by 40 years of antinatal propaganda from a pro-family, pro-natal culture, which we had in China back in the 70s, uh, to an antinatal, anti-family culture uh, that we see today. And uh, I think there's very little the Chinese Communist Party can do to reverse this trend there simply aren't enough young women in China uh, to do so. And so uh, China's future population is basically baked into the cake at this point. I mean, you could eliminate some corruption in China. Uh, you could find finance for China's industries somewhere else in the world, maybe in Western Europe. Uh, you could solve some of the other problems uh, that China faces. I don't think the Chinese Communist Party will, will do that. But certainly those problems are more soluble than the intractable, insoluble problem of simply too few young women and, and too few young women who are interested in having children 
and raising a large family. So China's population is doomed to decrease. And, and I will say this again about the numbers. I think the fertility rate in China now is less than one child per woman over her reproductive lifetime. And I think the Chinese Communist Party is also not telling the truth, surprise, surprise, about China's population in general. I think China's population has actually been in decline now for several years. Uh, the population statistics, like all statistics, are massaged to make the Chinese Communist Party look good. And what also happens at the local level is the school principal, who gets funding based on how many students he has in his school, exaggerates the number of students. The hospital administrator, who gets funding based on the number of patients he has, exaggerates the number of patients. So there's exaggeration of the numbers at all levels of government so they can get more central government subsidies. And so at the end of the day, you get population numbers that are exaggerated by tens of millions, uh, maybe by 100 million people. So China's population is not 1.4 billion, probably closer to 1.3 and shrinking. And it will increasingly it will shrink increasingly rapidly in the years to come. It is accelerating, going downhill, and it is accelerating fast, Bob. One statistics, uh, which we will no longer hear because uh, uh, the China's officially said they're no longer going to provide it, is youth unemployment, which had reached the shocking level uh, yeah. of well over 20%. Young, educated people out of the universities trying to find work but cannot over 20%. That has to be, uh, well, it's obviously a, a troubling enough statistic that they don't care about it. And I don't know how they're going to address it to create the job opportunities. So those, some of them are the best and brightest, find the work they need to sustain themselves and also to start families if they so choose. Well, that, that's right. I mean, the whole the whole uh, of the Chinese economy is a giant Ponzi scheme. Uh, look, let's let's be clear about that. People in China with any wealth are offshoring their wealth uh, as quickly as they can. There are strict controls on uh, uh, taking currency out of the country. The restriction, I think, the last time I checked was uh, 50,000 U.S. dollars a year. Uh, there are many uh, billionaires in China, multimillionaires in China, a huge pool of, pool of capital in China that is a bit desperate uh, to get out of the country. And the people who own the capital are, are leaving as well. There's a huge uh, drain of capital on China that the Chinese Communist Party simply cannot stop uh, the, the hemorrhage of. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party leaders are, are the worst offenders in that regard. I mean, you have Xi Jinping, for example, whose brother and, and sister-in-law have, uh, have offshore bank accounts, reportedly. Uh, you have the former premier of the country, Wen Jiabao, who served from uh, 2002 to 2012, who amassed a fortune of $2.3 billion. That's billion with a B over the course of 10 years in office by accepting bribes for promotions to various uh, county and provincial and national government offices. There's tremendous, tremendous corruption in China, uh, which is a a great burden on the economy. There is the mismanagement of resources in China because no one really cares because the state is paying for everything. Uh, there are uh, state-owned companies. All the state-owned companies are, are probably close to being bankrupt. Uh, they're white elephants. They absorb capital. Uh, China Rail, I mean, if, if people uh, for a few years ago were talking about the high-speed rail in China 
and how uh, advanced their system was. Well, they stole their system from the West, <laughs> but uh, but it was advanced. Uh, they put a lot of money into it. Uh, but China Rail today, which runs the subways and all the high-speed rails throughout China, is like $800 million in debt. That debt will never be paid back. That debt has to be sustained. The interest on the debt has to be paid by somebody who's being paid by the central government. Most of the subway lines in China lose money from year to year, except for the major ones in Beijing and Shanghai. The crackdown of the Chinese Communist Party on all forms of dissent has resulted in fear on the part of Westerners uh, who have been warned by their governments uh, not to travel to China because you're at risk of arbitrary arrest and detention. Now, I've been at risk of arbitrary arrest and detention in China for four decades. So I used to go undercover. I don't anymore because it's too risky. But that risk of arbitrary detention and, and arrest and detention is now widespread among people who really uh, would normally be going to China just for purposes of tourism. Foreigners are viewed as spies. And uh, again, uh, the U.S. State Department has uh, has issued a warning about travel to China. So the airports, the international airports in Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou are now emptying out. There are fewer and fewer people traveling to China, thus killing off the tourism business. Uh, the economy is in much worse shape than the Chinese Communist Party admits. And, and again, the statistics game, right? Uh, for years, China would say, the central government would say, our growth target this year is 6%. And all of the provincial party secretaries would report that their growth had been 6% or 6.5% or 6.2% or 6.3%. You see, no one dared report less growth than the central government predicted because that would be grounds for removal. So all of the numbers in China are false. I think that China's economy is in recession. I know that most of the large construction firms in China, uh, the ones that made a lot of money in past decades, building huge cities, building huge apartment complexes, building huge retail outlet centers, uh, are now uh, close to bankruptcy, if not actually in bankruptcy. Companies like Evergrande. And uh, at the end of the day, 60% of China's wealth is in property. And if the bottom falls out of property values, which is beginning to happen in China, that wealth uh, disappears. The debt incurred by governments at all levels, the national government, the provincial governments, the local government, the off-the-record the debt incurred by local government, county governments, and township governments is enormous. It will not be paid back. There's no way to pay it back. And the whole economy is going to collapse uh, like a house of cards that it is. Steve, I've taken those high-speed rail trains in China. Indeed, that was very impressive, as was the modern airport in Beijing. But those uh, trains took me by these ghost cities, these ghost apartment buildings that had been built, but there were no people in them or they weren't finished. And analysts say that China has overdeveloped its infrastructure for the size of its population. It already has so many apartments uh, that remain unsold. As you know, President Xi went on a campaign to basically drive down uh, the price of real estate uh, and those apartments to make them more accessible. But the, the 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 dark side of that is exactly the point that you made that most Chinese use their uh, their real estate holdings as as their bank as their future, and when those prices fall, they are grievously injured. 
because of these population statistics, some analysts are saying that uh, this, this decline in uh, real estate prices is long-term. This is going to uh, remain fixed, or not fixed, but it's, it's going to remain related to the declining population from the cohort that would be buying these apartments. Otherwise, they're simply not there. Yeah. So the market uh, for these overbuilt apartment cities isn't there, and that will inevitably lead to a continuing decline in, in the most valuable asset for the Chinese people. Does that jibe with what you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, th this is al already happening. I mean, years ago, uh, it was reported that there were probably 70 million empty apartments in China. That is, uh, apartments that had been built had been constructed uh, for which there were no buyers. And uh, recently, there have been deals such as you buy one apartment, get one, get one free. <laughs> it's BOGO for apartments, uh, which is probably unprecedented in the history of the world. But here's, here's, how that, here's how that happened. You have rapacious, corrupt officials confiscating land from a nearby village, basically demolishing the village, uh, paying the villagers a pittance for their land and their demolished homes, and just, or just basically driving them off the land and, and, and expropriating the land. The corrupt party official who controls the local police and is able to do that by using force uh, then goes to his buddy who runs a construction company and his buddy who runs the local county bank. And they all work out a deal together. The bank loans the construction company a lot of money to build an apartment complex on the land that the construction company gets from the local party secretary who stole it from villagers. Now, no one in this entire process has done a market analysis. No one knows if anybody is going to actually buy an apartment in the apartment complex that is going to be built on the stolen land, but none of them care because the bank manager is on the take and gets a share of the loan under the table. The construction company uses shoddy materials and, and, and makes a lot of money, and the corrupt party official, of course, is on the take as well and gets a share of the take. And at the end of the day, they all profit. The apartment complex is built, but no one buys an apartment in the complex. So the loan stays on the books of the local bank and is never paid back. That's why local debt in China is over $10 trillion easily. And it's really off the books debt because it hasn't been authorized by the provincial authorities. It hasn't certainly been authorized by the national authorities. So that's where all of these ghost cities and these ghost apartment buildings come from. They come from corrupt dealings on the part of uh, party officials who can put together the land and the capital and build a building. Uh, the only thing they can't do is, is ensure that there are buyers uh, to buy the apartments that result. So that's happened all over China. That's why you've got these tens of billions of empty apartment buildings. That's why you've got these ghost cities with retail centers that are that have been built that that no one uh, occupies. Um, so that's that's a, that's a major problem. Another major problem, of course, is is Xi Jinping's uh, anti-corruption campaign, which he basically began when he took power in 2012 as a purge of his political enemies. 
But local party officials, you see, Bob, looked at the corruption campaign as an opportunity to feather their own nests, to profit. And so instead of going after Xi Jinping's political enemies, which they did in part, and confiscating their wealth, they also went after entrepreneurs. They also went over after people like Jack Ma, who was once the wealthiest man in China, who started Alibaba, the equivalent of Amazon in China. They also went after other billionaires and multimillionaires, accusing them of corruption, which they could easily do because there was a nationwide corruption campaign on, and then using that pretext to confiscate their wealth and put the entre entrepreneur in prison or, uh, or have him conveniently fall off the balcony of a 20-story building in a uh, so-called suicide attempt. Uh, China is actually the riskiest country on the planet uh, for a billionaire to be a billionaire in because billionaires are being arrested, tried, tortured, and killed in large numbers in China today as Communist Party officials seek to, to, to create wealth for them. So not to create wealth, but to steal the wealth that has been created by entrepreneurs and, and line their own pockets. And again, you know what that does to create creativity and, and innovation. You know what that does to uh, entrepreneurs, the people who would normally start poor or middle-class and, and, and uh, create goods and services that were in demand and become wealthy. Uh, those people, once they become wealthy, uh, they get repeated visits from local and more senior Communist Party officials, depending on how much wealth they have. And uh, you have to pay off the officials. Uh, otherwise, uh, to stay out of jail. And of course, that uh, that really puts a damper on economic growth, as you can imagine, because you're eliminating the most productive and enterprising segment of your population or forcing them, if they can, to emigrate overseas in large numbers, which is also happening. So again, we, we know that communism kills. Uh, sometimes it kills slowly, sometimes it kills quickly, uh, but it kills, it kills people. Uh, it kills creativity, it kills economies, and ultimately it collapses from its own internal contradictions. Steve, uh, Xi Jinping is, is aware of the problems that you have mentioned, and he's spoken openly about them, that uh, there's going to be a major campaign from the party and the government to uh, try to increase the birth rates. And they, as other countries uh, have, have who are experiencing a declining birth rate and a declining population, have also tried uh, these subsidies, uh, trying to lower the costs for child care, trying to lower real estate costs, uh, giving subsidies for young couples to buy or own apartments, uh, and, and to try to increase the programs for helping the elderly for whom they have to take care of their parents, grandparents. According to what I have read so far, uh, this is having no effect. In fact, in interviews by journalists with Chinese women who are of childbearing age and who are married <clears throat> say emphatically they, they will not have children. As you pointed out, the, the ethos, right, the, the traditional view in China was a family was your life, the most important thing in your life. But when you hammer that family with uh, what, four, 40 years of one child, draconian one child policy, uh, the culture of family must have been changed, as you indicate, so that the very young women on whom you'd be relying for population growth don't want to have anything to do with it. And the things that are mentioned are the following. Cost. 
the price of raising a child, the cost of education, the cost of the care of the other people for whom they must care, the demands of work, the lack of child care, uh, the desire for a better life that they won't have if they do have children because so much of their income is going to go to raising that child. And the fact that the woman is basically going to have to do all the work because of the Chinese culture, it's it's the woman who's going to have to clean the house, educate the child, the man, the husband and the father is not as actively involved as he may be in other cultures. So where you would think the traditional Chinese family culture uh, would, would reappear to uh, rejuvenate the Chinese family, apparently so much damage has been done over those past 40 years, along with the economic situation that having children puts uh, young couples in in China today, that this isn't, this isn't working and there doesn't appear to be any means by which it will work, even with these subsidies, which so far haven't changed a thing. No, I, I think that eventually the Chinese Communist Party will probably resort to coercion uh, forced pregnancy in order to get the birth rate up. Now, if that sounds outrageous, if that sounds like something that no government in human history has ever done, well, you would be correct. But would would it stop the Chinese Communist Party from attempting it if it thought that it's China's survival as a nation, the Chinese Communist Party's survival as the party in power, uh, depended on forcing young women to get pregnant, whether they wanted to or not? Well, of course, uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which recognizes no moral or ethical boundaries, uh, would not hesitate to resort to some sort of compulsion if persuasion doesn't work. Uh, I think you, you have to look back at how they, quote unquote, persuaded uh, young women in China to get abortions during the one child policy. There was an escalating series of threats and punishments for young women who became pregnant outside the quota system, uh, pregnant with a, their first child too soon or pregnant with a second child that wasn't permitted. Uh, they would first be visited by a party official saying, you're violating the rules, you must, you must come in and terminate your pregnancy. Uh, if they refuse, the, a group of party officials would come. The water and electricity might be turned off to their home. Uh, they might be taken by force, literally by force, in a paddy wagon to the uh, local abortion center to be aborted. Uh, if they fled into the hills to avoid uh, forced abortion, uh, their house might be torn down. They and their husband and their relatives would be arrested and held in, in secret jails run by the family planning uh, people in China. They, uh, I mean, all of these things actually happened in and, China. And you, and you personally, you personally witnessed. And I personally witnessed these crimes against humanity, these crimes against women. Now, a government, a political party that is capable of brutalizing young women and young families in this way would not hesitate to use all means at their disposal to get their birth rate up if they thought that their survival uh, was at stake. So uh, will there be forced insemination in China? Uh, will there be forced pregnancy in China? I haven't heard mention of that yet, but it would not surprise me in the least if local party officials started being given quotas for the number of babies that their county 
or their township or their village must produce each year on pain of being fired from their jobs and, and uh, retransferred, demoted, or in other, wise, other ways punished. Now, if you put heavy pressure to bear on par local party officials through the system of party control, they in turn are gonna use all means at their disposal to force young women to get married and to have children. So I wouldn't put anything past these people. Uh, they will resort to Deng Xiaoping's uh, tactic uh, that, he, that he enunciated in 1980. He said to Chinese Communist Party senior officials, we must control China's population. Use whatever means you must, just do it. And I can imagine Xi Jinping in the next year or two, when he realizes how serious the birth dearth is in China, the birth dearth is in China, that he will say to senior party officials, use whatever means you must, to increase the number of babies born, just do it. And we will see all kinds of abuses uh, following that order. So is there any combination of incentives short of compulsion that can increase the birth rate? Well, if China had, like Hungary, a thriving economy, if China had a government like Hungary that was family friendly, that respected life, and that encouraged uh, young people to get married and have children by providing them with low interest rate loans to buy a home, uh, providing them with, with low interest rate loans or subsidies to buy a larger vehicle so that they could cart around three or four children. Uh, if the general ambiance, if the general cultural milieu was favorable to having children and it was economically possible, these activities, these subsidies these inducements might have some effect. Uh, Hungary has raised its birth rate over the last few years uh, from 1.1, total fertility rate, whether from 1.1 to over 1.6, and it's still rising. So they're on the way to ensuring that the Hungarian people will survive uh, in the decades and generations to come. China isn't, and, and I don't see how the Chinese Communist Party, uh, given all of its... Uh, 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 behavior is possibly going to turn this around short of out-and-out -out coercion and compulsion. Well, uh, France apparently is another example where uh, the incentives that the government has uh, supplied and the increased child care uh, is having an effect on population growth there. Uh, but as you say, there's, there's a culture there, there's an infrastructure there. Uh, a remark about China's demographic situation today that I hear frequently is it's the it's a country that's grown old before getting rich. Yeah. And, uh, you know, France is getting older, but it's rich and can therefore uh, handle these subsidies uh, to to encourage young couples to have more children. And it's it is having an impact. It is working in France. And as you said, it's working in Hungary. Americans were under such illusions about the nature of the uh, communist regime in China because of its embrace of so-called market economics, uh, its allowance for a significant private sector in the business world in China, uh, that it was no longer really communist, that this was just a facade. And uh, it's it's a capitalist society and the the social forces unleashed by capitalism is going to transform China into a, you know, a more democratic regime. Of course, this has never happened. It was an illusion from the first place. 
Uh, however, there is there is more or less. There is some latitude. Uh, that latitude seems now to to have been shrunk by Xi Jinping, who has been so explicit so many times that Marxism is the basis for uh, uh, that regime. Uh, it's uh, Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics. His demands for increased indoctrination uh, to party members and uh, his determination to gain more direct control over the economy by placing uh, party members and intelligence people in or on the boards of their significant corporations so that the party has a direct say in how those corporations are going to behave. This to uh, an American or Westerner or to uh, the, in the Asian developed economies would look at this and say, if your primary goal is a growing economy to support your population and, and to try to create the incentives to turn around these population decline, you're doing exactly the opposite thing. That's not in the interest of that goal. But we would understand uh, what we think China's national interests are differently from the way, obviously, Xi Jinping understands them. So that's, would you comment on that general picture? Well, the idea that that, that China was going our way, uh, that somehow that our sending technology to China, sending trillions of dollars in our retirement funds to China to subsidize the build of their industry, uh, that somehow opening our markets to China, cheap Chinese made goods, goods made by by serfs uh, working in factories 12 hours a day or or goods actually made by slaves working on cotton plantations uh, in the far west of China in Xinjiang, the Uyghur minority, uh, basically treated like uh, slave labor in that part of China, producing cotton products. All of these things were were pipe dreams, literally. They have not materialized, and they were never going to materialize because the, the paramount principle of the Chinese Communist Party is that they are interested in, in consolidating, maintaining, and, and, uh, and using uh, their power to assert totalitarian control over the masses of the Chinese people. Now, I think a lot of American company, Fortune 500 companies, were sold a bill of goods. They thought of, they were promised enormous profits from being able to produce and sell their goods to one billion customers. Uh, that was the mantra a few decades ago. And of course, they went into China only find their technology stolen, competing factories set up, run by uh, uh, people who owed their allegiance to China, not to the Fortune 500 company, and were connected to senior leaders in the Chinese Communist Party. And they were outcompeted within China and then shortly thereafter outcompeted in producing goods for export to the West. So this has all been a giant fraud perpetrated by the largest uh, organized uh, crime syndicate in the history of mankind, the Chinese Communist Party. We could also call it the largest uh, international criminal conspiracy that's ever existed. Again, the Chinese Communist Party. Because remember, uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, has a constitution, their constitution in China, that guarantees freedom of speech, freedom of association, uh, freedom of, of, uh, of conscience, freedom of religion, all of which is a sham. Uh, the idea that there is a private sector of the economy is equally an illusion because there are no private companies in China. There are companies that are 
controlled directly by the Chinese Communist Party, and there are companies that are controlled indirectly by the Chinese Communist Party, but they are all controlled by the party and they all do the party's bidding. That was made explicit in the 2017 intelligence law that was promulgated by the CCP, which says that all companies must turn over their data, all data of national security interest to the intelligence services of the Chinese state. And that means that if you run a company in China, you proactively turn over all of your data to the Chinese state, you, lest you be accused of not complying with the law, right? So everything that goes into computers in China, every company in China uh, turns over all of its data in real time to the Chinese state. And, and add to that the fact, as you mentioned, that every major company has a Communist Party member sitting on its board of directors. Now, if I'm the chairman of a company and you're the representative of the Chinese Communist Party, not you personally, Bob, but if you're the representative of the Chinese Communist Party, who has the final say over decisions? Certainly not me, because the party has ultimate control. And if I do not do what the party wants, they will imprison me and confiscate, expropriate my company. So effectively, they've taken over direct control of all the major companies in China. As far as the smaller companies, every company in China with over 50 employees has to have a Communist Party cell with a Communist Party secretary. And once again, if you're the entrepreneur who runs a small factory or small retail outlet, and there's a Communist Party secretary among the workforce, he, he actively calls the shots. He actually calls the shots in the company, not you. You'd better not cross him because he can have you arrested and perhaps take over the company for himself. So the big picture is this, that by opening our markets to Chinese-made goods, made by prison labor in some cases, slave labor, by serf labor, by workers who aren't allowed to organize labor unions or strike for higher wages, by financing the rise of an industrial sector in China, especially in the export sector along China's coast, by providing raw materials, by providing food and other raw materials for China's factories. We've enabled the rise of the Chinese Communist Party into a power that now has the ability to destroy us. We've enabled the rise of an adversary that is bent on destroying us and re replacing us as the dominant power on the planet. We know that. Uh, we know they've been at war with us since basically the founding of the Chinese Communist Party back in 1921. They have always been hostile to us and to democracy in general. And especially since the fall of the Soviet Union, in 1991, in October of 1991, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Deng Xiaoping said to his senior leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, the old Cold War is over. America has won. The new Cold War is now beginning, and China will win this one. So China has been in an undeclared war with the United States across all domains, except the kinetic. We're not firing bullets at each other yet. Across all domains, except the kinetic. We're at war in cyberspace. We're at war in outer space. And the sooner we realize that, and the sooner we get in power in Washington, D.C., people in our government who understand uh, that China will give no quarter, that China regards this as a, as they say, a nisu uh, uh, a you die, I live, a fight to the death. Uh, the sooner we realize that this is a fight to the death of one of our systems, uh, the better off we will be.
as an indication of the priorities of the Communist Party, it's uh, startling for many people to hear that while China has undertaken what is said to be the fastest military buildup in history, where it now has a Navy that in its size easily eclipses the Navy of the United States, it nonetheless spends more on its measures of domestic control and intelligence than it does on that huge military buildup, which raises the question, Steve, as to what the structure of the population in China today and its decline means for the China dream, what it means for the restoration of the Middle Kingdom that uh, Xi Jinping uh, speaks of so often as he plays to this nationalist uh, aspirations of China and constantly beating the drum about Taiwan to return this to the motherland and uh, so all of us Chinese can be together. So he, he he's playing on that while at the same time enforcing Communist Party doctrine. Some people have suggested that war is, there's at least a correlation. It may not be causation, but there is a correlation between the size of the population in terms of young men available for military service and the likelihood that they're going, especially if they're sort of excess young men, as you have indicated, so many more men than women, yeah. there'd be more of a, uh, a, a tendency to use them in a military adventure uh, that can also, uh, let us say, divert attention to the domestic problems, which you have spelt out so well uh, in terms of the Chinese economy and, and turn people's attention to this, uh, uh, you know, external uh, challenges to China that have to be met by a kinetic approach. Would you say today that the structure of the Chinese population uh, would make that more likely than not, particularly in light of the fact that the future holds that there, there's going to be a smaller cohort of, of young men fitting in that situation that I just described. In other words, you strike while the iron's hot. Yeah, I think there are several factors that contribute to Xi Jinping's present and future aggressiveness. If you listen to his speeches, as I have, the language being used is incredibly aggressive. It, it, it harkens back to some of the language uh, that was used by Mao Zedong uh, back in the 1950s during the first and second Taiwan Straits crises when he was threatening war with the United States. It, it's incredibly bellicose language. And it's very clear that Xi Jinping himself imagines himself as a second Mao, as a, a worthy heir to the founder of the Red Dynasty and wants to complete the work done by his predecessor, Mao Zedong, by fighting the last battle of the Chinese Civil War and destroying, uh, finally destroying uh, the nationalist forces uh, on Taiwan uh, once and for all. And the fact that there are 30 million more uh, young men in China than there are women means that he has a huge cohort of young men available for such an adventure who right now are unemployed. And many of them are what they call the Tangping, which means laying flat. They're not doing anything. They live in their parents' apartment. They spend their days gaming. 
They're not interested in finding a job, starting a business. They're completely disconnected from the kind of uh, family values that previous generations of Chinese have enjoyed. And, you know, they would, uh, they would make a uh, great cannon fodder if they could be, as they are being enlisted into the Chinese army and trained for an invasion of Taiwan. So demographics is certainly one factor. Another factor is the collapse itself, because you know that the Chinese Communist Party will not go quietly into that good night. Uh, should the economy collapse, as I think is likely, that the Chinese Communist Party might well embark, Xi Jinping might well embark at that point on a foreign adventure to justify uh, locking down the population once again and directing all the efforts of China towards the reconquest of Taiwan, which would, I think, among some Chinese, the low information uh, people in China uh, would provoke a nationalistic response that would help to uh, to keep the Chinese Communist Party in power. So um, the collapse will not lead to peace across the Taiwan Straits, but might increase the possibility of war itself. So uh, I think there are a lot of factors that are playing into Xi Jinping's future decision-making in this regard. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned about the Navy, I was the Naval officer with the Seventh Fleet, serving in the Seventh Fleet in the latter years of the Vietnam War. I, I was in uh, Sasebo, Japan, on the Southern Island, Kyushu, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in Tokyo Bay, uh, in my with my official duties. And I will say that the countries surrounding China are now aware, having been made aware by the aggressive bellicose language of Xi Jinping himself and the Chinese Communist Party, that China is a threat to their continued existence. And so we see things like the first joint defense discussions, military exercises between the United States, South Korea, and Japan have taken place. There is a lot of animosity, has been a lot of animosity between Korea and Japan over the decades. That animosity has now been put aside by the common threat that they both face from China and its puppet state, North Korea. You also see the quadrilateral alliance forming between Japan, Australia, the United States, and India, which is the countries of which are participating in the first time in joint exercises in the South China Sea and other places. And this is being driven not by the Biden administration. It is being driven by the concerns of our allies in Australia, uh, the democratic government in India, and uh, our allies in, in Japan about the need to contain China's aggression by working together. Uh, because if they don't stand together, I think they realize they will all fall separately uh, into China's clutches. So China is, by its actions, by its military buildup, by its bellicose rhetoric, forging an alliance against it. Now, there was a recent speech given by Xi Jinping at the annual Beidaihe conference uh, up north in China. Every August, the senior leaders of the Chinese Communist Party gather at a an exclusive resort for senior Communist Party leaders in China. It's called Beidaihe. And he gave a very intemperate, angry uh, even speech, talking about how China was being contained uh, by a U.S.-led alliance and how it was necessary to strike in the near future and how the People's Liberation Army needs to be ready to act at any time. And he's been he's been sacking 
uh, generals in the PLA, People's Liberation Army, Navy, and Air Force, left, right, and center, probably uh, getting rid of those who aren't ready for war and replacing them with, with, with people who are. So I do think that these are very, very dangerous times and uh, that he would like to see in his lifetime. And, you know, he's, he's uh, getting older day by day, as we all are. He would like to see in his lifetime Taiwan recovered. He promised to recover it by 2020. That deadline passed without incident. Uh, and the new deadline, we're told, is 2025, which is only a couple of years away. So I think we're living in very dangerous times because all of the different catastrophes, all of the different calamities that await China, the demographic, the economic, the trade problems that it's having with its allies, the rising unemployment rate, the empty apartment buildings, all may result in Xi Jinping lashing out at his neighbors, especially at Taiwan, and provoking a war uh, that he might just prevail in. Steve, I, I want to close on a population issue, and that is to put the decline in population in China, and as an aside, you mentioned India, which is now the largest population in the world. Yes. Uh, but these other Southeast Asian, Southern Asian countries are all experiencing population declines and all have very low birth rates, notoriously so in South Korea, which has, which is below 1%. One, 1%. Uh, yeah. And Taiwan, again, very low birth rate, uh, Japan. So let's put the decline in China within the context of declining birth rates all around it, how, how it's the same and how it's different. Well, that, that's a very interesting question. Uh, how it's the same is, is they, they, they all share a, a common uh, Confucian culture, which in the past valued uh, children, valued family ties. Um, how it's different is the, the United States in the early 1960s used both Taiwan and South Korea as guinea pigs in population reduction programs, in population control programs. Uh, they were the first countries on which we, in which we went in uh, with generous funding and encouraged uh, young women not to have children, encouraged families to stop at two children. And so I think that 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 uh, anti-people, uh, anti-natal, anti-baby propaganda uh, worked its worked its will. Um, the other the other thing that's different between China and Taiwan and uh, and uh, South Korea and Japan is that South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan are all, all highly urbanized uh, societies. Uh, China still has a large rural population in the 400 million or 500 million or so. You would think that on the farm that they would be still having two or three children. But even that fertility uh, among the rural population where children you know, can begin to work on the farm and help their parents uh, in, their, in their teenage years, has been destroyed by almost 40 years of relentless uh, one-child policy propaganda and by all the coercion that resulted. And, you know, the coercion was not just forced abortion. It was followed by forced sterilization. So the women who were forcibly aborted were also sterilized, so they could never, ever have children again. Uh, there was no going back uh, from that operation because uh, the reversal of surgical sterilization procedures was simply not available in China until recent years. Um, and, and the final thing is that all of those countries grew rich uh, before they grew old. Their fertility fell in 
parallel with their increasing uh, per capita incomes. China got the cart before the horse, forcing fertility down before the economic development began taking place. So while those countries, as we mentioned earlier, grew rich before they grew old, uh, China is still a middle-income country and is growing old before it grows rich. And I think that will ensure it stays uh, in the middle-income trap, or worse, that it falls to an even lower level in, in the years to come. Which so, leads, oh. leads many analysts to say that uh, that combination of things that you just mentioned, Steve, uh, that China is not going to uh, eclipse the United States as the largest economy in the world. They just they don't have the means to do that. I'm, I'm going to close with another interesting statistic. Uh, you alluded to this kind of thing earlier in the program, but I find this fascinating. The United States, as you well know, does not have a replacement uh, uh, birth growth rate. However, since 1960, on the average, there have been a million immigrants a year into the United States, which has kept the population in the United States growing. Whereas during the similar period within China, there was an average of a loss, a net loss of over 265,000 migrants each year. So this, which has allowed the United States to continue growing, uh, is the exact opposite of the situation in China where people are leaving. And of course, you could go earlier than 1960 and find that very pregnant date of 1950 when they've chosen, when they have the opportunity to get out of there. So they don't have that to rely on to, to recover uh, their population statistics. Could you make a quick comment on that? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we've always said that, that that people vote with their feet. They aren't allowed to vote in the ballot at, at, at election time in communist countries, but they vote with their feet and, and leave if they can. Well, that's why the Communist Party has made it difficult to leave China. Uh, you can't get uh, a passport or an exit visa uh, from the Chinese Communist Party unless you're politically reliable, unless you have a good social credit score. Uh, so there is that uh, that we have going for us that, that China does not have going for it. Because the most uh, talented, uh, entrepreneurially minded people in China are precisely the ones who want to leave and come to places like the United States of America. Um, so again, our long-term prospects are, are and, and India's are much brighter than China's because we have a younger growing population. China has an aging, dying population. Um, China is dying. I'm just going to leave you with an image, Steve. When I was in China on a, on a delegation, uh, I had a, a young interpreter, and it was the first time she had worked with the uh, Foreign Department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. So I was able to have very many interesting conversations with her. At some point when we were having dinner together, uh, she asked to see a picture of my family. She, of course, came from a one-child family. She's yeah. very, very bright. So I showed her a picture of, of me and my wife and our four children. And her, I've never seen such a look on a face. Her, her jaw dropped. And there was such a look of amazement and incomprehension that there could be such a thing. 
she she was she was totally startled by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just gave me, in human terms, some measure of the damage that had been done. That what I've been blessed with was so far out of the reality that she knew or thought was possible. Well, I, I, I know you would have many stories to share that are far more powerful than I, but I'm afraid we're out of time. And I would like to thank Stephen Moser, the president of the Population Research Institute, for joining us today to discuss China's demographic challenges. Uh, I invite our listeners, viewers, to go to the Westminster Institute webpage or to our YouTube channel to see our other offerings, um, many of which are on China and Taiwan, Japan, as well as other issues. Uh, including the Ukraine-Russia war, uh, the causes of inflation, and and other such topics, which I, I hope you'll find interesting. Thank you for joining us. I'm Robert Riley.